Good evening. A very warm welcome to the uh, European Leo Beck Institute lecture series. Um, this is the second uh, lecture in this 2017-2018 uh, series. Uh, there was a large, a long break uh, you know, uh, in between. Uh, Lisa Apignanesi's talk in December, and now uh, this evening we can welcome Thomas Harding. And then it goes on in a in mm -hmm. a uh, shorter or with shorter intervals in sequence. Um, again, my name is Andreas Gestrich. I'm the director of this institute. For those who don't know me, and uh, Daniel Wildman, the director of the Leo Beck London Leo Beck Institute. We have now cooperated for many years uh, on on this lecture, and. Um, the idea was yours, uh, the, um, the difficulties of writing family history as a uh, topic, but it's something that interests us in many ways as well. I've just come back from a conference in Calcutta on uh, uh, India and uh, Asia as uh, a refuge for European uh, Jews, not only Singapore, also India, and we dealt a lot with uh, mm -hmm. Family histories, and uh, I think it's next week. Athena yes. Frostman will uh, tell her story, which mm -hmm. also goes via India, uh, among other mm -hmm. countries. Anyway, this is a very complicated topic. It's a, uh, in many ways, a dramatic uh, topic. Writing family histories in the uh, age of extremes and the Holocaust mm -hmm. and uh, I'm very grateful to you all that you come and listen and share your experiences and with us, with the speakers and uh, we follow the normal procedure that Daniel Wildman will introduce the speaker and then we have after the lecture a discussion and then mm -hmm. a glass of wine uh, next door. So, over to you, Daniel. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Andreas. And I'm also very happy to welcome you to the second lecture of our season's European Leo Beck Institute lecture series. And my first thanks go out to you, to our audience, um, to have you braved the elements, especially the snow, and really excited to be here with us tonight. I think that's very nice of you all. The series is organized, as Andreas pointed out, jointly between the two institutions, the German Soul Institute London and the Leo Beck Institute London. And my thank second thanks go out to Andreas and his team for cooperating with us and setting up and running our lecture series. And it's really great to do this together. My name is Daniel Wildmann. I'm the director of the Leo Beck Institute. And I'm really happy to welcome you here in this extremely beautiful venue. As you know, this year's topic is the difficulties, difficulties of writing family history. And really, it can be indeed quite difficult, disturbing, but also surprising when you write about your own German-Jewish or European-Jewish family history. And I'm therefore very grateful and happy that our speaker of today is Thomas Harding. Thomas wanted originally to write a book about what he calls so beautifully 
his grandmother's sole place. Right? But it turned out to be a book about a house to be really, literally, physically on the front line of history, of German history and of German Jewish history. Thomas Harding is an author, but also a journalist. And he has written for the Financial Times, the Sunday Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, just to mention some of the papers he was, or probably still is, working for. But Thomas also <coughs> produced books. Let me mention some of the books he has published so far, which are important for um, our topic. First, Hans and Rudolf, the German Jew and the Hunt for the Commandant of Auschwitz. The book came out in 2013, was translated in very many languages, also in German and in Hebrew. Um, the book has been shortlisted for the Costa Biography Award 2013, and the book is the winner of the Jewish Quarterly Wingate Prize 2015. Or another book. The Cadian Journal, also very much a book about family history, a very moving book, a book about the tragic loss of his son. <laughs> and finally, this book here, The House by the Lake, also shortlisted for the Costa Biographical Award 2015, longlisted for the Orwell Prize 2016, and also this book, has been translated in many languages. Among these languages is also German. Now, there's something that's really interesting. The German edition is the only edition which has the little yellow star on its cover. The British edition is quite different. What you find of its cover is something totally different, a Rosinenbomber. That's a very different story. Maybe you're going to talk about this too. Tonight, Thomas is going to talk about you are doing what? My family's response to me trying to save the house stolen by the Nazis. So Thomas, over to you. Thank you, Daniel. Well, thank you to Daniel and to uh, Andreas uh, for inviting me tonight. Can everybody hear me okay? It really is a beautiful room, isn't it? Look at that ceiling. Uh, I'm going to uh, talk about the writing process. It's very interesting. Normally when I get invited to talk, I talk about the story, I talk about the characters, but today I'm going to really try and talk about the process of writing and investigating my own family's background. Uh, so forgive me if, if we go into different areas. Um, I'm going to concentrate maybe on four different topics. You'll see them as they come along. And I put together a, a presentation. Normally, I don't do presentations, but um, it seemed appropriate tonight. So uh, let's, let's see. Let's keep going. So my family, uh, the Alexander family, uh, were from Berlin. My great grandfather, Alfred. First of all, has everyone, who's been to Berlin? Put your hands up if you've been to Berlin. Okay, almost everybody. So my great-grandfather, Alfred, lived in West Berlin, in Charlottenburg. Uh, he was one of the most well-known doctors in the 1920s. His clients included Albert Einstein, Martin Dietrich, Max Reinhardt from the Deutsches Theater, 
they had the most fabulous life. And of course, Berlin in the, in the, in the 1920s you know, was a, a great place to be. Um, uh, this is a, a, a picture of the family. So my, uh, my grandmother, Elsie, uh, she was a larger than life character. Uh, my uh, great grandfather, Alfred, uh, in his bathing trunks and his moustache. And then my <laughs> uncle, Hans. And they were twins. You see, there's another boy at the back, Paul. They were identical twins. And then Bella, who was the fourth child. Henny was very rarely, my great-grandmother was very rarely in the pictures. And Uncle Hunts, who was this very naughty prankster man, he used to tell us dirty jokes when we were kids. He used to, um, uh, he used to be the guy in the, in the synagogue who would organise the picking up of the chairs and putting away the tables. But he also, <coughs> as Daniel said, he... He was involved with this thing that he never talked about. Like many families, people didn't talk about what happened during those difficult times. And it was only during his funeral, he died in 2006, it was only during his funeral when I heard his eulogy that I learned for the first time that he'd tracked down the commandant of Auschwitz. He'd arrested the commandant of Auschwitz. That's quite a big thing for a German-Jewish person to be involved with. And because of that, I, I, I researched it and I, and, I, and I wrote this book, Hans and Rudolf, uh, which took a long time to write. And it was my first real book. It took me eight, uh, six years to research and write. Uh, and it was during the process of writing that book, which was very much about Hans, my uncle, Rudolf, Rudolf Huss, the commandant of Auschwitz. It was this dual biography. You go between their two stories that I learned more about my family background. When I was growing up, no one really talked about what happened in Germany. Occasionally, there'd be some jokes. Uh, my grandmother was a tour guide and, uh, in England, even though she knew nothing about British history. She used to, to go to the Coventry Cathedral and Leeds Castle, and her specialism was taking elderly German tourists around uh, Britain and telling them all about English flair play and Shakespeare and pointing out Coventry, which had been destroyed by the German bombs. She took great pleasure in showing that to them, making them feel very awkward. And then also making sure that the gaps between the toilet breaks were very long, so they weren't able to go to the bathroom very often. Uh, <laughs> but that was, you know, that's my grandmother. She, she, she had a sense of humor, I think. But um, during the process of researching Hans and Rudolf, I, I, um, I got to know about the family and, and Berlin, and of course this is Berlin. Uh, this is Charlottenburg, where they used to live. Um, uh, they had two cars, two marvellous cars, one for the driver, the chauffeur, and one for Alfred, because he actually liked driving himself. So he had two cars, and uh, on the weekends, they used to like to get out of town, and they used to, excuse me for these really bad graphics, they used to go out to this village called Grosglinica. So if you imagine where Grosglinica is, if you've ever been to Potsdam, who's been to Potsdam? Put your hands up. Just north of Potsdam is the Vanze, and just north of the Vanze is this very small village called Grosglinica. It's actually now part of the city of Potsdam, politically. But they used to go out there. It took about half an hour to go out there. And um, this is the house. They, they built this lovely little wooden, it's like a dacha. It's a very small house. The footprint of the house is about as big as this room. It's not, not very big. And it overlooked the Grosglinica. They had the most beautiful view. And they used to go out on the weekends 
and go swimming and 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 it's very simple so the house uh, the apartment in Charlottenburg was 17 rooms and they had a maid and a cook and a cleaner and somebody came round once a week to wind up the clocks the idea here was just very simple so you can see inside it's just wood there's no paint a very simple house and uh uh so I was doing research about Hans and Rudolph, and while I was doing research, um, somebody in the village contacted me. Uh, I warned you, bad graphics. <laughs> You're going to get two of those. And she, she called me up, and she said, Sonia called me up and said, look, you have to come and see the house. This is 2013. You have to come and see the house. And I'd been to see the house in, 2000, in 1993 with my grandmother, Elsie. We called her Granny. So I'd seen it, but I'd never been back there. There were tenants living there. So I got on a plane and I drove out there. And do you know that feeling you get in, that, in the base of your stomach when a child falls off a swing? You know, that really awful feeling. I came to see the house, and this is what I saw in 2013. The house was totally overgrown. It was, um, you could barely see the house. The, glass, the windows were broken. The, uh, the roof was leaking. You couldn't even get close to it. And inside was even worse. You had uh, the, the, the walls were destroyed. There was graffiti on the walls. Uh, the bathroom was totally destroyed. Um, there was rubbish everywhere. In my great-grandparents' bedroom, it uh, had been used as a drug den. I mean, this is evidence of drugs. You can see there's a little metal spoon. It was really terrible. And I felt, I felt sick. And I went to the neighbor's house. And I said, what's going on with this house? And they said, well, it's been abandoned for 10 years. But if you want to find out what's going on, go and talk to Potsdam. So I took my car and I drove over to Potsdam to, this is the courthouse. And I went down to the basement of the courthouse. And my German is non-existent. And her English was even worse. <laughs> and so we really couldn't communicate so I got a friend, I got phone a friend, and I got my friend, to, and I'd pass my mobile phone backwards and forwards. And eventually, I was able to say who I was, and she said, well, we need to get the permission of the most recent owner of the house. I said, well, that's difficult, because he died in 1950. And eventually, she relented, and she explained that the house was uh, going to be knocked down. It was going to be destroyed, and they were going to build new houses in its place. And she showed me this, <coughs> this plan that the city of Potsdam had. So I had just arrived just in time to discover that this house was going to get knocked down. I was feeling really anxious now and very surprised by my emotions. I, was, I had a real emotional attachment to this place I really didn't know. I didn't quite understand why I had such a response. Maybe because this was the last physical trace my family had in Germany. Maybe. Um, maybe because we'd already been told about the house when I was growing up. This was my grandmother's sole place. This was the place where they remembered having such a wonderful time, this very easy, uh, joyous time before all the craziness happened with the National Socialists. So I went outside and I saw in the hallway a list of all the departments, and one of them had something to do with historic houses or something. So I went upstairs to the third floor, I went up and down this corridor, knocked on the doors, and eventually one of the doors opened. And there's this very nice young man and woman there who spoke English. And I explained what, what had happened that day, like I have just told you. And, I, and they were very excited because they didn't know about this whole house. They, they were 
department responsible for the historic monuments for Brandenburg. And they said, hold on a second. And I said, what? They said, well, maybe there's something you could do. And I said, what? What can I do? I want to do something. They said, if you can prove that this house has historic importance, cultural and historic importance, maybe we can save it as a monument. The equivalent in this country of being on the list of registered buildings. I said, well, how do you do that? And they said, you have to tell the story of the house. So that's how I then spent the next two years researching the story of the house. First of all, my family, but then also the other four families who lived at the house. So it became the story of Germany over 100 years, told through these five families. Um, let, me, let, me, um, let me start with my first, my first idea. So I'm going to come up with four things that I learned in terms of researching families and the stories behind them. And it's not just about my family. So this, for example, is the Volanks. The Volanks were the owners of the estate, this very large estate. They had a schloss. They had a lot of agricultural land in the uh, 19th century, early 20th century. And they ran out of money, and they actually removed their vineyard, the Weinberg, and they leased out the land, which is how my family got involved, because they, they took the first plot. They were the first outsiders in the village, the first people from Berlin. And I wanted to find the Volanks, and I couldn't find them anywhere. So this is about doing the hard yards. Doing the hard yards is, an, I guess, from American football. The idea is that um, you have to just grind out the yards to be able to get to the end zone. It just takes work. It's effort. Sometimes it's just effort. Uh, in my case, uh, what I had to do is I had to find this gentleman here, Otto von Volank. His name was on the internet, but I couldn't find anybody associated with him. And again, I can't speak German. I live in Hampshire. I was stuck right at the beginning. So luckily, through my publisher of Hunt and Rudolph, I, I asked them, do they know of a researcher? And they said, Daniel. Talk to Daniel. Not this Daniel. A different Daniel. And um, Daniel... Daniel said, oh, sure, I'll do it. And I said, how long is it going to take? And he said, you know, I don't know. And no one in the village knew where the Volanks were. They'd disappeared. So that was on a Friday about 5 o'clock. Uh, Monday morning, 8 o'clock, I have an email from Daniel. I found them. I said, where? They said, so um, I, I found, um, there's Horst and I found um, Marcus. Um, and I said, where do you find them? And he said, I found them on Facebook. <laughs> so who knows who the woman in the middle is, the woman on the left is does anybody know who that is Lady Gaga so, so that's Marcus von Volank uh, known as Marcella to his friends who is a social journalist in Berlin who hangs out with all the stars so really it wasn't that hard to find him in the end <laughs> if you knew where to look which I didn't know uh, but again, doing the hard yards means going to the archives. It means uh, uh, spending time. Um, uh, so um, uh, Marcus is, is Otto's grandson. Going to the archives in Brandenburg, going to the city of Potsdam archives, going to the Brandenburg region archives. And some of these archives, has anyone been to the Brandenburg archives, state archives? Some of these archives that you have been, how was it? A different building. Yeah, yeah, this is the new one. This is the new one. Uh, so they're, they're, they aren't necessarily the easiest people to work with. <laughs> it takes three weeks to make an appointment. Um, and, uh, but once you get in there and you 
demonstrate that you've got good intentions, um, it's possible to get in there. And um, in these archives, just as an example, this is the state of Brandenburg, the Landes archive, I guess is, is what you'd call it. Uh, there's one in Berlin, but the one in Brandenburg, not as many people go to. They had a file on my great-grandfather. Now, this is very, very unusual. It was the Gestapo file on my grandfather, great-grandfather. And in there was two files. One of the files were letters. Imagine this. These were letters from the Gestapo to my great-grandfather's clients. And the letters went something like this. Dear Frau so-and-so, we believe... This is 1939. Right? My great-grandfather has been in England for three years by then. 1939, July. Dear Frau, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we believe that your, um, you were a client of the former Jewish doctor, Alfred Alexander. Well, that's going to put the fear of God into you right there. Right? Because they know who you are, that you've been working, you know, you're, you're, and they said, uh, we understand that you owe the good doctor so much money and we're here to collect. And they wrote to all these people collecting these small amounts of money. I mean, that's how, what's the word? Uh, efficient? Officious? I don't know what the word is. Uh, maniacal? Um, it was quite extraordinary to have that. And included in those documents were also the, uh, the uh, letters showing how the property had been seized through aeronization. So sometimes it just, you have to just go through the documents. It just takes time um, to do that. Uh, the next family that I um, want to find out about was Will Meisel. So in these documents, I discovered that Will Meisel, he was a music publisher. Very, he made schlager music. Uh, I don't know what that would be in English. Popular music? I don't know what schlager music. Anybody know schlager music in English? So what is it? Songwriter. 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 But schlager music is like popular music. It's like... David Hasselhoff. Okay, <laughs> thank you. It's like a type of music which they had in movies, but it's, it's, it's pretty bad music, but very popular. And they would use it in movies, on the radio. He wanted to be a classical music composer, but there was quite a lot of competition. So he became one of the most well-known uh, schlager music publishers and composers. And um, he... Uh, uh, in 1937, he had a young family. He wanted to have a weekend house, a Wochenend house. My family had left. So he wrote to, um, he, he asked his estate agent, and they put them together. So my family rented to him the house. No problem. They paid the rent. Come 1939, though, when the Gestapo took the house, this very um, interesting gentleman, uh, Will Meisel, wrote to uh, the police, and they said, I'm in the market for buying aeronized properties, do you have any? And unfortunately for him, um, in the archive is a copy of the letter. This is an extraordinary document because, as you know, most people who are involved with anything to do with aeronization or seizing a property, there was no paper trail. So after the war, when the denazification trials took place, very few people actually had any consequences, except for the, the really serious death camp SS officers. Very few people, some of the most famous composers in Germany, um, who are uh, uh, some of the most famous business people. They were, the Americans, the French, the Russians weren't able to pin anything on them. There was no paper trail. This, this guy was stupid enough to write to the head of the Arts Council saying, I'm interested in buying uh, this thing. And, and unfortunately for him, the letter survived. So he wasn't able to even run his company again until 1952. That's seven years after. And that shows you the consequence of the paper trail. Again, doing the hard yards, 
that was, I think I found that in the Bundes archive in Berlin. Sometimes it just takes time to, 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 to get the work. Uh, that's his signature, by the way. Um, let's talk about Will Meisel, keeping it real. So finding Will Meisel's family was easier. I googled Meisel music. And Meisel music still goes, is still going in Berlin. Uh, it's a publishing house. And uh, in the 1970s, they were incredibly well-known. They had this incredible studio, the Hansa Studio. Anybody know about the Hansa Studio? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Hansa Studio is where David Bowie recorded his trilogy, his Berlin trilogy. Um, and lots of other famous acts recorded in these studios. Um, he was given a, the, the cross, the Federal Cross, for his arts work. Nobody talked about what happened during the war. Uh, his family told everybody, uh, we bought it for a fair price. I, went, I called up his grandson, uh, Sven Meisel, and he said, come over and come and see me. So I went to see him. Um, this, is, this, is, uh, this is Sven Meisel. You can see all the platinum discs. Uh, I think Boney M. They've got something for Boney M. By the Rivers of Babylon. Is that Boney M? Mm -hmm. um, and he was very interesting. At first, he was very nervous. He was, what are you doing here? Why, what's your interest? And <coughs> are you trying to get the house back? And don't forget, Potsdam owns the property. And I said, no, 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 I'm just trying to understand the story. I just want to save the property. And by being honest, by keeping it real, he wasn't threatened. At first, he had been very anxious about talking with me. And instead, he saw me as a, um, as a partner. Uh, they had failed to get the house back. Uh, but we had something in common. We had this cultural link in common. And uh, so he went downstairs to the archive and he picked up his own, he had his own archive and he had these photographs. And these photographs were extraordinary because they were almost identical to the photographs in my family. They were just of another family. And suddenly I realized this other family loved the house as much as we did. How interesting is that? Um, about six months ago, uh, I was in touch with Sven, with music, Meisel Music, and Sven had died. He had died at a very young age of 49 years old. And I was in touch with uh, the firm and just keeping them up to date with what was going on. And I invited his mother to come and see the house. She had never seen the house. Her husband, Thomas, grew up in the house. He learned to swim in the lake. And for him, it was this, I guess, a sole place as well. And I said, come, come out to see us. So she came out to see the lake, and she was this extraordinary character. She was out of glam rock from the 70s. She was really bubbly and feisty and funny and very physical, maybe a bit, bit too physical. And, um, and she had this plastic bag. And she said, I want to give you this plastic bag. And I said, OK, give me the plastic bag. But she wouldn't give it to me. She was holding it. And I was holding it. And I said, what's in the plastic bag? And she said, I want to give this to you, but you need to know that we've had a big debate in my family. Everybody in my family says, don't get involved. Don't get involved. But this is important to me. I was part of the 60s generation when I was challenging my parents about what they did during the war. This is very important that I'm part of this process of reconciliation. I want to give this to you. And I said, OK, what is it? He said, she said, these are all the papers documenting how my family stole the property from your family. And she said, when you tell the story of this house, I want you to tell it the good stuff and the bad stuff. <coughs> That's pretty amazing. Uh, number three, push nicely. So 
When I started this project, as I said, I've said to you, I, I don't speak German, but I did have an, uh, an assistant who just left school. She was a high schooler, she was 18, uh, called Johanna, and she would do the translation, and we'd go and interview people. And we would sit down, and I'd ask, I'd ask them questions. And I'd ask them questions which made her very uncomfortable, because she was asking the questions. I was asking her, she was asking the people. Things like, what did you eat in 1970s? And where did you eat it? And on what kind of cutlery did you use? And she was like, that's very private. You can't ask those kind of questions. I said, it's really important. I'm telling a social history, a cultural history. And these kind of items, these everyday items, are really important to people. It's where the emotions are in the story often. And she said, it's too intimate. I can't do it. Germany, we don't do that kind of thing. I said, no, no, it's really important. And eventually, she relaxed about it. And so, for example, the East German family who lived there, there were two families who moved into the house. I should explain that the, um, after the, pardon? After, after Germany was split in um, 1949, uh, the, um, the border went through the lake. So the, lake, the, the border between East and West Germany, between Berlin and East Germany, or West Berlin and East Germany, went through the lake. So it was right on the edge, and... Uh, Two families moved in there. So in this tiny little house, 13 people were living. And uh, uh, one, of, one of the families were the Kuners, and another family were, were the Furmans. And I asked the Kuners, I said, what did you, what did, and he said he described this coffee pot with a sunflower. And for 15 years, they always drank coffee from the same coffee pot. And that's really interesting to me, because it's visually something which is part of the story. And I think when people have those visual triggers, when you can locate a story in, with objects, like Neil McGregor has, does so well, you can really understand how things work. Uh, so, oops, that's the wrong direction. So I met this gentleman called um, Lothar Thurman. He, he, when I took him back to the house, he lived 200 metres from the house. He'd never been back since 1965. And when he and his wife went back, they had their engagement party at the house. At the time, that was quite difficult because the Berlin Wall was built between the house and the lake. The Berlin Wall was, the, there was two, as you know, there was, at the end, there was two walls. And there was the uh, wall by the lake, but there's another wall near the house because there's a dead zone in between. And the, the wall near the house is about 10 metres from the house. But beyond that, there was a security zone, which I didn't know, a border security zone, of about 50 to 100 metres and only people who lived in the border security zone had a pass. So that meant when, these, when Lothar and his wife got engaged in my grandmother's bedroom, which ended up being Will Meisel's piano room, that was very interesting, by the way, tracing all these people through these different rooms, they had an engagement party in this, in this room. They couldn't bring any of their friends. You know, for the, how do you, polterbend? How do you say it, polterbend? When they, when, 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 when you smash the plates. <coughs> But they smuggled everybody in because it was kind of fun. And then when they smashed the plates, of course, they made a lot of noise and all the... That's not very clever with all the security. But, they, but well, these are really interesting. So when I showed him the house, he was crying. I mean, he, he was really emotionally involved with this house. Uh, this is Wolfgang Kuhner. Very briefly, um, he was recruited as a, a Stasi informer uh, because he was living by the wall and he and his wife could look at who was going near the wall. He was actually fired from being a Stasi informer. He was so bad, they released him, uh, which I think is quite embarrassing. Um, 
This is the wall itself. So that is Gross Kleene Kaze. These are real photographs. You can see the, you can see the, uh, the path where they used to drive up and down. You can see the lights. There was watchtowers. Um, you can see the island. Um, and, and then his... Pardon? Am I? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, thank you for telling me that. Um, that's basically where the house was. Uh, so it's right next to the, right next to the wall. And uh, this is Wolf. This is Wolfgang's son Bernd. And this I'm going to explain the push nicely thing. So I was sitting down with Bernd, and he still lives in the village. He's very. I mean, this family, the Kuners, lived at the house the longest for about 35 years. And I was asking Bernd, what was it like to live by the wall? I'm curious, you know, you're living in a, a militarised zone, what's it like? And he said, well, let me tell you, 1989, February 1989, which was seven months before the wall came down. Of course, they didn't know, no one knew the wall was coming down, the CIA didn't know. Uh, no one knew, uh, famously, none of the intelligence services knew. And he went out to a party and uh, he got absolutely fabulously drunk with his friend. And sometime around two o'clock in the morning, they decided it was a good idea to go and visit the West. Now, he'd never been to West Berlin before. And in 1989, it was quite scary. You know, over 100 people had been shot, had been killed trying to cross the wall. But they were so drunk, they thought it was a great idea. So they, got, they went down to the bottom of the garden. They got a ladder, put it against the wall, <laughs> climbed over the wall, pulled the ladder after them. And after that, there's some trigger wires at that stage. And there's sand, because they want to see the footprints. So they, they scarper across the death zone, they, all the trigger wires are going, all the flares, the orange flares, the green flares. Um, and uh, they get to the second wall, by which stage a bunch of people are chasing them. They get over the second wall, they're now at the lake. Now you have to remember the lake, for the last 30, 40 years, they've been dumping raw sewage in the lake, they've been dumping barbed wire with the old wall, when they got rid of the old fence, they just pushed it into the lake. When they built the concrete, there was landmines in the lake. Um, but most of all, it was February, and it's quite cold in February. And they had to swim across the lake. It wasn't frozen at that stage. But they were so drunk, they didn't know any better. So they swam 600 meters across the lake, and they got to the other side, and they got to the restaurant. And they climb up, the dog's barking, they climb up, and the restaurant owner uh, comes out and says, what are you doing here? Who are you? And they said, oh, we came from the east. And he said, oh, the east! Come in, come in. So they came in and they gave him beer and schnapps and sausages, gave him some blankets, and they're having a great time. They're laughing, you know, freedom and welcome to capitalism. And, and then about six in the morning, Bernd says, mm. and the guy says, don't worry about it, you can sleep upstairs. You can, we've got room upstairs. He said, no, 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 I need to get back to my wife. She'll be missing me. And the restaurant guy says, what are you talking about? That's crazy. He says, no, 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 we need to get back. So they swam all the way back <laughs> over the walls. When he told me this story, I thought, this is ridiculous. Uh, you would never imagine these kind of stories to be true. But sometimes, if you push nicely, if you, if you encourage people to share their stories, you can get surprising information. Being open. So time to talk about my family. As you notice, I've left it to the end, because I don't really want to talk about it, because it's kind of difficult. When I first talked to my family about telling this story, they said, you can't. <coughs> Don't bring your dirty washing out into the public. And uh, it's just difficult. And eventually I said to my dad, could you just send me a family tree? I just want to know who's who. And he, he, you know, he's like a bunch of other retirees. He spends quite a lot of time on, on those websites finding out 
who's related to who. And he sent me this list. And I was looking at it, and I was thinking, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, there's no date of death on, on Rosa. And there's no date of death for Emile. And there's no date of death for Franz or Alfred. So I called him up and I said, what's, what's going on with that? And he said, oh, you know, sometimes we just don't know. They've gone to Argentina, they've gone to America. You know, we, don't, we have a very large, this is only about, by the way, about a tenth of the family tree. It goes on to four pages. It's, you know, he's got tape and everything. And um, he's very proud of this, although his writing isn't very clear, I think. Uh, and I said, Dad, what's, what's, what's going on with this? He said, we, well, you know, we've just lost track of them. So he contacted some of his family in America. Nobody had heard of these people. And I said, OK, let's find out about this. So I, I went on to the Yad Vashem database of victims. And within about 10 minutes, of course, I learned that they'd been murdered during the Holocaust. Now, for my family, this was quite a big deal. Uh, my family's story is that we're survivors. None of us were, died in the Holocaust. We were the lucky ones. And there was always this story within the family. And we were, in that way, we were separated from the rest of the community. Our family was very much part of the German-Jewish community of London. They were one of the founding members of Belsize Square Synagogue in northwest London. And there was always this separation uh, between us and everybody else, which was both good and bad. And this totally overturned that story, which for the, my family was very difficult. Uh, it raises questions of why did my father's mother not say anything? Why, uh, why was there secrecy? You know, what, what, how should we feel now? And all those kind of questions. So uh, when I went to my family afterwards and I said, listen, I want to do something about this project, it didn't go down too well. Um, uh, why is this not moving? Oops, let's try this. Oh, there we go. So this is my family. They don't still look like this. Uh, the, the guy at the front is actually Hans. He's the guy who captured the Commandant of Auschwitz, the guy in the dress. And uh, <laughs> Alfred, the doctor's at the back. Uh, so just imagine, that I, I just thought I'd use a family photograph, but I thought this was quite funny. This is in the house, this is in the apartment in, on Bundesallee. It used to be called Kaiserallee, now it's Bundesallee, near the zoo. And uh, we all met in my aunt's apartment, Hyde Park, and I gave people the whole spiel, like I'm done today, about the history of the house and how it's going to get knocked down and let's work with the locals who are wonderful and they want to work with us. And the reaction from people wasn't very good. Uh, you're doing what? You know, you're in England. What are you talking about? They stole the house from us. You know, uh, why you? Why, you wh why is it you who should be telling this story? You know, you're, you're not necessarily the oldest. You're not necessarily the person who knows what he's talking about. You can't even speak German. Are you crazy? Um, I think that's pretty self-evident. Um, uh, and then my dad said... You expect us really to put our hands in our pocket, you know, and I, of course, I can complete the sentence, you know, when they stole the house from us in the first place. And at this stage, I realized this was a big mistake. You know, I totally misread the situation. I thought this was going to be an opportunity for reconciliation. I thought it'd be an opportunity to take some of the lessons from the past and try and create a better future. And I totally misread it. So I start gathering my things. And then my cousin put her hand up said actually I'll go I'll go out there and help clear up and then my other cousin said 
Look, there's an opportunity here for, there's a very special opportunity here for reconciliation, and we'd be nuts not to take it, even though it's difficult. And so we came up with a compromise. Those people who felt they couldn't go, that was fine. Those people who could, that was great. And so a few months later, in 2014, 14 of us flew out to Berlin, and we got involved with the cleaning up of the house. And there was over 80 people from the community. And there's my dad with a wheelbarrow. There's my uncle uh, on your left. Uh, that, the gentleman in the middle is called Christoph. He's quite a famous historian. Don't know if anybody knows him. Christoph Kalesa, Kalesa, um, DDR historian in Germany, happens to live in the village. Uh, and a bunch of local people from the village. And we spent the whole day clearing up all the detritus from the house, uh, uh, moving washing machines. That's our neighbor cutting back the, veg the vegeta vegetation. And then that evening, um, uh, okay, here's a picture of, is that a picture of everybody? There we go, here's a picture of, of, the, whole, of the whole group. And um, that evening we met in the community center and the mayor of the village, who's the man next, who's just there, he, he um, had the temerity to actually play some of the audio tape from the 1930s of Himmler and Hitler calling for the extermination of the Jews. The reason why I say temerity is because, and I didn't know this, but many of you may, may know this, but in East Germany, they didn't teach the Holocaust like they did in the West. In the West, after the 50s and 60s, there was a, a, a big drive to teaching about the Holocaust. In East Germany, not so much, because after all, how could they be responsible for the Holocaust if they were communists? The communists, of course, can't be fascists. So the Holocaust wasn't taught in the same way in East Germany. So the, the fact that the mayor played this audio tape was quite astonishing, especially when we were in the room, these German Jews. And then it was my turn to stand up. And again, of course, I wasn't speaking German, so my friend Moritz helped with translation. And I put a picture of my grandmother up on the wall, and somebody said, who's that? And before I could say anything, my father stood up and said, that's my mother. But he said it in German. And they said, Hans, what? You speak German? And, and he said, not very well. And then for the next 10 minutes, he spoke in perfect German about the history of the house, about his mother, and about the story, and about how moved he'd been that day about working with the local people to fix up the house. And that changed the dynamic from us, the returning German Jews, them, the local Germans, to a we. And that has uh, been an extraordinary shift ever since. Uh, the, um, the book came out in 2015, 2016. And ever since, uh, we've been working with the village uh, to build an education reconciliation center. Uh, the house was saved. It has Denkmal status. And we're working with uh, organizations in Berlin uh, to create a, uh, a new building. We're working with David Chipperfield's, Chipperfield's architects to build a new building where people can come to learn about the history of the house, the lessons of history, to build a better future. So that's a little bit about how I researched and wrote the story about this house and my family. Thanks a lot about this extremely brilliant and super interesting lecture, basically lecture about how these two books belong together. Hans starting to speak German yep. here again after many, many years. Over to you. Questions from your side about... Yes, here we are. 
Uh, I wonder, uh, how was your research funded? Uh, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. So, so um, I mean, I, I write books, and I get paid in advance. Uh, but I have to, I have to pay all the expenses. I had to. Pay, I spent um, six weeks in Berlin. Lived. Um, I lived in a friend's apartment. Bought my family, and. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, it's expensive. I don't have an academic position. I don't have a fellowship. Anyone offering, I, I gladly accept. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's it's not easy to make the finances work, you know. But you find a way if if it's important to tell the story. I think. Yeah. Yes. Why do you think your family was so reticent about uh, cooperating with you? So the question was, why was my family reticent uh, about cooperating with me? Because. Uh, they'd been kicked out of the country, their family members had been murdered, they, uh, they had uh, been kicked out of school, they'd been spat on in the street, uh, they had been brought up by parents who said that uh, the Germans had done awful things to them. And those are very real traumas very, very real traumas, and I totally understand that. And in my family, it's always two things. So, and it took me a long time to understand this. So, when my, I, my grandmother, who was the head of the family, she was this powerful lady, granny, uh, and she, she took us out to Berlin to see the house in 93, but one of the people who went with us was my girlfriend at the time, Deborah, now my wife, this is 93, and Granny Elsie knew Deborah very well. They were very friendly with each other, but Deborah was brought up Christian in America. Uh, when I went to see my grandmother with Deb, um, because in my family you went to Granny to ask permission, you didn't go to my father. Or... So, I, so I went to, to her and I said, Granny, I've got some great news. I've got some wonderful news for you. And she said, Ah, oh, my darling, what's the news? And, um, or something like that. And, uh, and she said, uh, so I said, oh, I've got some great news. Uh, Deborah and I are going to get married. And she said, ach, Hitler has won. Hitler has won. And I'm like, oh, this is so embarrassing, first of all. You know, my girlfriend's there. What's she thinking? She thought it was hilarious. I was mortified. Um, so that's the first thing, because that's very real. Um, for my grandmother. The second thing is, six months later, we got married, and she officiated the wedding. Right. So it's always these two things. When, um, when after Brexit, I applied to get my citizenship returned, thanks to two very nice ladies here in the audience, um, uh, I wrote to the embassy and I said, you know, please, can we get? Because as you know, you can apply for the restoration of your citizenship if it's taken. By National Socialists, I called up my dad and I said, Dad, um, I need the documents. I need birth certificates. I need marriage certificates. And he said, your grandmother would roll in her grave. Right? Response number one. And then he stayed up to two o'clock in the morning trying to find the documents. Response number two. So it's always these two things in my family. There's this gut response, this habituated gut response. And then there's this more enlightened, positive view. And, and what I've learned is unless you acknowledge the first, there's no way you're going to get the second. And I don't think you should. And interestingly, having learned that with the village, that was really helpful. 
we would never have got involved with the village unless they were the ones who initiated the research. They were the ones who were researching what happened to the Jewish families. Over 25% of the village were Jewish. And they did research about where they went to. And it was because they went out of their way and they were so committed to acknowledging the sins, the crimes, the atrocities of the past that we felt comfortable even walking through that door. My family, I would never have... I mean, I used to go to Germany. I used to get the heebie-jeebies, you know, because this is how I was brought up. You know, there's somebody's coming to get me. There is somebody coming to get me. You know, a lot of people talk about having a bag packed and all that business. That was very real for us, very real for me. Uh, and having this experience over the last however long it's been, five years, has been an extraordinary transformation for me personally, but also for my family. And it's been a very real process, a very real process of reconciliation. And there's still people in my family who doubt whether it's real. Uh, you know, I, I gave a talk for Hans and Rudolf to our synagogue, and this elderly gentleman came up to me afterwards. He said, this is a very interesting lecture, very interesting lecture. I said, okay, thank you. He said, how often do you go to Berlin? I said, all the time. He said, do you shake their hand? You know, these are very real feelings, and, and they need to be honoured for very, I think, for very good reasons. Rodney. Thank you very much. It's a terrific lecture. And Thank I you. enjoyed both the books. But you, you make it very clear that you don't speak German. Yep. And I, I just want to hear a bit about the process. Mm. I mean, I understand the documents are produced and somebody translates them. Mm. But the process over the years of actually finding documents when you don't speak the language uh, uh. strikes me as extraordinary. I mean, how, how having gone through that sort of process yeah. myself Imagine doing it in a language I don't speak. Yes, so it's really interesting. I mean, the, the, the discussion about why I don't speak German is an in, uh, personally an interesting conversation for me personally. But the, the process is both a useful one and not a useful one. So I've spoken to quite a lot of Germans, and they said, how the heck did you get these people to open up to you? Especially in East Germany. There's a, a total fear about privacy, understandably in the East, because of the Stasi and so on. How did you get these people to talk to you? And I think because I was an outsider, but also an insider, that kind of helped. And because I didn't speak German, in a weird way, I think helps, because I'm coming... I really was clueless, honestly, about the history. You know, I knew the Nazis were bad. The Kaiser was kind of difficult. You know, I didn't... The DDR... You know, I didn't know anything. You know, I didn't even know that Germany was created in the 19th century. I, I knew nothing. And I think that maybe had an advantage, because I had no preconceptions, or very few... And, and so I just want, I really genuinely just wanted to understand. And so when I was doing my interviews, I think maybe people picked up on that. And having, you know, a young woman who was helping doing those conversations helped uh, because, you know, she could speak German, she could speak perfect English. We had a, a lot of coffee and cake. You know, that was really, that was great. In the archives, though, I also think it helped because I'm in, I write narrative nonfiction. It's all true, it's all fact, but I try and use the, the um, techniques of fiction about character arcs and, and plot devices and all those things, conflicts. I knew what I was looking for. So when you've got 30 folders of stacks of paper, which I'm sure you've seen before, and I know what I'm looking for. So I don't need to, I don't, you know, Johanna would be reading the whole will. I say, no, no, don't read the whole will. I want the bit when the will's disclosed to the family, because I know that's the bit that's going to be in the book. So let's find that bit. 
And let's not translate it perfectly. Let's just understand what it says, get a copy, and then later, if I want to use it, then we'll do translating perfectly. Right now, I just want to understand. And so I'd be just flipping the pages, like literally this quickly. And she's like exhausted, because she's like, this page, you know, it's like going over. And I, sometimes she'd get frustrated and get angry because I'm not, she doesn't feel I'm being serious enough. And I'm saying, no, no, we have a vast amount of information to get through. So let's just get through it. Uh, and I think maybe sometimes being an, Again, being an outsider helped in that situation. I never found the language an obstacle, ever. Uh, the, uh, I mean, the only times I got into difficulties would be when I'd meet East Germans who were upset I couldn't speak German. That, and that happened. You know, I'd apologise and just say I'm sorry. I just, you know. There was a question in the last row. Yes. Um, thank you very much. Very interesting. Um, you just mentioned that the book is full only of facts. Correct. But I wonder whether memories can always be facts, but if they're necessarily fluid. So I talk about that. So there are these wonderful German expressions about memories. One is about time memory and one is about, what is it? Is that, what, what, what's the two things? There's, there's time memory. That's right. Um, so an English yet have the same. Um, and for me, you have to have both. The witness who's actually there remembers and the evidence. So for me, it's about, I'm an anthropologist as a background, it's about trying to do a 360 degrees and you try and put it all together. And if you're really micro-focused like I was, do you ever do, you know those experiments that kids do at school, at grade school, when they go out and they make a little square in the field and they count, they do a, like a microcosm. Mm. So that's what I was trying to do, you know, because it's so specific I could do that. I knew exactly who was in the room and how the objects got transferred from one person to another. And because of, I had access to living, people remember, remembered, so the time witnesses, and I had documents, and I had photographs, and I had film. By the way, if you ever want to go and see the film, it's amazing, it's on the website. Alexander House, H-A-U-S, alexanderhouse.org, O-R-G. My grandfather, great-grandfather liked to take film. So we got film from the 1930s of them having this wonderful time. We've got film, we've got architectural drawings, we've got... Um, we've got uh, recorded interviews and what you try and do is you find a specific moment in time and then you try and get as many different viewpoints and that's how you build that's how I do it and you build a bit and the thing is and I learned this a long time ago is most people don't lie the vast majority of people just don't now there might be slight differences but most people don't lie and so actually what you find is the thing actually matches pretty much I mean sometimes they do have differences so when I was doing Hans and Rudolph, um, I met this woman called Anita Lasker, who some of you mm. might have met. And she was a cellist in Auschwitz. Mm. She was a prisoner, and then she ended up going to Belsen. Well, she was dancing with my great uncle at the uh, Boxing Day Ball in Belsen, 1945. And he, was, he liked the ladies, as you say. And she mm. wanted to get out of Belsen, so they had a joint interest of talking to each other. And, and she said, please, could you get me out of here? And he said, yes. And then the next day... She's waiting with her sister, is it Renata, is that her name? Uh, with a suitcase by the front gate, and he's five hours late, and she's pissed off. Anyway, he turns up with a car, and, and in the back seat is Lucille Eichengreen, who's another quite attractive young lady. And they both get in the car, and now there's three girls at the back, and there's Hunt at the front, and they drive to the border. And uh, Anita said, when she told me the story, uh, I mean, she's 19 years old, uh, and it's a very big day for her. They get to the border, Hans hands over the papers. He worked for the war crimes investigation team. They let him through. That's it. Lucille Eichengreen said, 
That's not what happened. What happened was we got the border, he shows the papers, they're not good enough. He grabs the papers, he guns the engine, he bursts through the fence. The guard, the guard starts firing, his engine, firing the gun. Bullets are going everywhere. And to this day, they're still arguing. I get letters from them both <laughs> saying, you've got it wrong. So yeah, so people have different memories about the same experience. But, but so the task really, in terms of the writing, is to try and get as many different types of vantage point and see where you can match, match them up. Yes? I had a quick one and a slightly longer one. You, Daniel mentioned that the German copy of the book had the yellow star on it, which we don't see there. So can you explain how that happened? And secondly, when you went back with your father for the first time, something that I've done with her, she didn't want to go in right. the building and Hugo maybe Brin tells the sure. same with Hugo. Um, how, how was that, that first visit back? So did everybody hear the question at the back? Okay, so the question about the yellow star. First of all, I don't get to design the covers. Um, you get to see different covers up here. Um, interestingly, uh, well, we, I don't get to design. I get to look at them, but I don't get to have a say. Uh, interestingly, the paperback's coming out in June, and now they're just going for the house, which is quite interesting. Uh, the thing about titles in Germany is really interesting. So... When Hans and Rudolf came out in Germany, I, I was interviewed by a bunch of journalists, and it was the only place in the world, it's been translated to 20, 20 languages, and it was the only place in the world that the journalists got upset with me about the names Hans and Rudolf. They got, and every journalist in Germany, these are very serious, very sophisticated journalists from the Zeit and Welt and everything, and they said, what are you doing? Are you an idiot? I'm like, what do you mean I'm an idiot? They said, you can't use Rudolf's first name. That is demeaning to the Holocaust. It's demeaning to the victims. This is disgusting. Don't you understand that in Germany, if you use people's first names, that's too intimate. You can't be respectful to someone like the Rudolf Hoss, the commandant of Auschwitz. Every single journalist said the same thing. And I said, I don't think you understand the point of this. <laughs> the whole point of this book is that we're trying, I'm trying to tell the story about these two human beings who have an experience and that one was not a monster and one was not a hero. They were human beings. And the idea is to go on a journey to understand that. And the fact that you're even don't, you don't understand that is really interesting to me because it was the only country in the world who had that reaction. Uh, so I think titles and covers do matter. They really do matter. In, in, in Italy, they call the book Il Comandante, <laughs> which made me furious, infuriated. Um, Annoyingly, the book sold really well, uh, so I couldn't complain too much, but it was quite interesting how different countries they had different viewpoints on honour. I would like to come in here to question, I mean, this example shows quite precisely how much emotions are involved and all values linked to these emotions. Now, when you started to, to do the summer house, the house by the lake, first you thought you were writing about your own family, but you turned, I mean... I think I see f at least five families, five the families, Roland, yeah. the Alexanders, the Kühne, yep. the Fuhrmann, and the Meisels. What are your emotional relations to these different families? Are they all equal, or are there some of these families you really hate, or are the families you really yeah, don't so know what? Yeah, so, so uh, I would say, um, I mean, I have very little relationship with, with the Volanks because they've really disappeared. Uh, I mean, Marcus is an interesting guy. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the Meisels I have a close relationship with. I feel connected to them. Mm -hmm. They are the most culturally similar mm -hmm. to my family. Uh, the uh, the Furmans, 
they're angry. They're still angry with me for writing this book. Wow. Uh, because they feel like I have crossed a boundary in telling their story. Even though, of course, I told them mm -hmm. uh, what was going on. And uh, uh, the Kunas, are, they're, they're wonderful people. Uh, and uh, there is, we're, I'm definitely, we're caught up in this. The village is very dysfunctional. It's the most dysfunctional village I've ever seen in my life. It's really extraordinary. So it's not just the tension between the returning Jews and the Germans. It's between the Westies and the Easties. It's, it's, it's the class. So not only do you have, like, you'll have a small little DDR house next to a $2 million beautiful architectural dream made out of steel and glass from somebody who's a doctor or a lawyer or whatever in Berlin. So you have this very strange economic divide. And then you have newly arrived refugees from Syria and Afghanistan. So you have very, it's a very, very, and, and the, the groups are totally um, segregated. And we're actually working with, we are funding from a foundation in Berlin called EFLZ, who traditionally do work with Holocaust, on Holocaust issues and fund Holocaust survivors. But they're working with us to try and do some work with integration and bringing people together. Um, and there's been some amazing stories. So um, <coughs> as it happens, which is slightly odd, but as it happens, some of my family have just arrived back in Berlin uh, because my sister married a Syrian Kurd 25 years ago. So nine members of my family have just arrived from Damascus back in Berlin. So we left as refugees and we come back as refugees. And um, they've been helping us with some workshops where we get some newly arrived refugees and the Germans and the German, you know, the German Jews and the West. And they found these really interesting commonalities of experience. So one of the people who grew up in the war said, you know, um, the most traumatic day of my life, I was five years old, the Russians were invading the village in April 1945. We spent the whole night in this big hole trying to be safe. There was shooting going on. <clears throat> And my sister's nephew from Damascus said, yeah, I had a very similar experience, you know, and suddenly they're seeing each other in a very different light. That's been a really interesting, really interesting process. Can I, do you, before I come back to you, I haven't, have in your mind, yes. don't, just one question before we hand over to him about these commonalities, which I think is a very interesting point, and you really make a point that you think the Meisels are quite similar to your family. And I also like the figure of Meisel, but he was a Nazi. Yeah, so I think... The How do you bring these together? Yeah, so Will Meisel, well, well, for, well, first of all, Will Meisel was one of the most interesting characters I've ever looked mm -hmm. at because he's so ambiguous. Yes, totally. You know, he's not Rudolf Hoss, who's obviously this d terrible, terrible human being. Mm -hmm. Will Meisel was one of those people who's going to make the best of any situation. He's going to take advantage of any situation. He doesn't have any moral scruples. Mm -hmm. He's always going to survive. <coughs> very, very, really interesting character. I, mean, I just think from a kind of a, a bourgeois, kind of mm -hmm. artistic, uh, sophisticated point of view, living in West Berlin, into the arts, into culture, that's what I meant. I mean, mm -hmm. not in terms of values or um, even personality. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's more kind of the cultural sharing of things. I mean, they both had wanted a weekend house in Gostlinica. Mm -hmm. you know. It's a very interesting point. Mm. Your case. Oh, yes, thank you. Um, thanks for a fascinating talk. Um, my, my question possibly was slightly answered in your previous one. I've got two questions, but um, the main one would be, um, when you started writing the book, did you realize you'd be also writing a bit of a history of the Cold War, as well as the previous conflict? And to what extent was that experience for the East German, former East German 
subjects? Was, was that a liberating experience for them to be able to talk So about? very quickly working on this book, I realised I wasn't just interested in my family. I wanted to tell the story of all the families so I could tell 100 years of German history. And the Cold War was and the DDR and even the Kaiserreich and the uh, interwar years and the, the time after the war came down, all of those were really interesting to me. So the 1933-1945 was part of it, but by no means was the most important part. Uh, and it's so interesting seeing as, I mean, I, there was this, this German lady stopped me the other day, and she said, I want you to know, I've never seen anyone come close as you have to writing the history of Germany like I see it. It's really interesting. And she said, because you, you, I, get, I got to see it through these families, through these individuals, uh, and through the objects they touched, through the rooms they lived in. Uh, I mean, we all live in homes. You know, what makes a home? What's the difference between a house and a home? It's about memory and belonging and the activities we, we, we have there, and it's about leaving and coming back. And I think that's really interesting to me. You know, this is, the, I think if this had been a huge villa or palazzo, it would have been a very different story. But this, somehow this, this house is so small. There's something about it which is extraordinary. And I think that's why I find it so evocative. Uh, because it survived, but so much happened there. I mean, we haven't even touched upon the fact that the Berlin airlift happened there. And, and um, uh, the, I talked about the, the occupation by the, the Russians and brutal occupation of the village. Um, and you know, there's so many things happened which the house saw. I mean, the other day we were looking at the house and the architect said, oh, look. I said, what? He said, those are bullet holes from April 1945 in the side of the wall. You know, so you get to see physically the physicality of history. So for me, what's interesting is how, do history, how does history happen to people? You know, we're, we, we're reading about Donald Trump or Syria today mm -hmm. as if it's out there, but this is history happening to individuals. How does history have a mark on individual lives? That's really interesting to me. Andreas? Two questions. Uh, I'm fascinated by these different, uh, yeah. the different yeah. covers again. Sorry, coming back to the cover. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And uh, what do you think? What would your own choice be? I mean, the British, <laughs> the English cover is, is is the GDR cover, and all the other side is very romantic. Uh, yeah. Uh, weekends scenes. And did you have any dis particular discussion with the the, the <coughs> So, so uh, my, um, my, my, my my real question. question <laughs> 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 um, I'm still intrigued by the fact that you've been contacted uh, about the yeah. And did you find out why that was the case? Yeah, of course. And, yeah. And, uh, yeah. I mean. Sure. Uh, was it the wish to establish a relationship uh, yeah, to get, again, or I'd love to explain to that. The whole thing being no, I'll done explain. And, uh, because it would have uh, sure. jeopardised their own uh, duchess. No, uh, no, 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 no. So let me answer the thing about the. I mean, the, the thing about covers is really interesting. We could talk a long time about covers. This is the paperback cover. I hope you can see that. Um, verse of the English edition. Now this again is quite dark, isn't it? It's, it's the lake. But it's not the Dutch or the, I mean, look at the Brazilian one on the top right-hand corner, or even the Italian in the bottom right-hand corner, which is very romantic. Uh, I think that is interesting. Uh, I mean, there is a difference between hardbacks and paperbacks, mass market and so on. Um, uh, the, the American one, I think, is really interesting, which is not, oh, the American one is on the right-hand side, which is, it's like these, you can't quite see it, but it's architectural designs at the top, and they've got the house. 
and um, they went for the three colours of Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. It's it's a I, I I don't know about covers. Covers are interesting, but they're not my thing. Um, in terms of how it happened, I kind of explained, but didn't do it very well. The local village had a Christ, a cultural and history group, and they were investigating what happened to the Jewish families. And each of the, there's about seven or eight individuals who had a family assigned to them. And this woman called Sonia Richter had the Alexanders assigned to her. And so she reached out to me um, to find out what happened to Alfred Alexander. And it was a circuitous route how she got to me, but she got to me. And it was at that stage that I said, oh, you know, I've been there before, but it was 20 years ago. How's the house? Is it? And then she said, actually, it's a disaster. You know, and that's how. So the fact that she reached out to me and, and she had a sense of urgency, that she felt the story, the house wasn't being protected, but it was more about the story wasn't being protected. You know, and don't, don't forget, this was the first house in the village to become a weekend house, of Jewish or non-Jewish. And so it was a real, a real significance to the village's cultural history. The, the village was, is very unique in other ways. They have this thing called a chronique. Do people know what a chronique is? So in East Germany, there was this extraordinary thing where the, I think the party encouraged these communities to record their own, to chronicle their own lives. And they would, it'd be obviously from a socialist point of view, and they'd have people who were reliable, who'd edit it. And the local person was a teacher, a reliable teacher, and they'd put in newspaper articles, and they'd put in uh, flyers from events, you know, the 25th anniversary of the DDR and so on. But these articles were so extraordinary, they'd be about uh, a, a poetry competition for the local school celebrating the fact that a second counter, food counter, had been put into the local shop. There's a really strain, and you really get a sense of value of, of and, and this has been over, over 30 years, um, this chronic, there was 40 volumes. And then, even more interestingly, after the wall came down, people went back and they amended what had been said earlier. They didn't change it, the original state, but they added stuff. That was really interesting uh, about what really happened, about who these characters really were, what here's my experience. And this chronique is an extraordinarily valuable social history for this village. And I was very lucky to have access to that, um, which kind of answers the lady at the back's question about how do you put this stuff together. That's one of, I was very lucky to have not only my family's and the Meisel family's archive, and the Kuno family archive, and the Voink family archive, the Furman's that we have an archive, they had memories, and then it, people's memories, and also the state archives, and the federal archives, and the but also we had the village archive. You know, really interesting as a as a resource. We I think we're quite lucky to have that. Yes. Thank you. I really enjoyed your presentation. Thank you. Um, partly because I've done some kind of research myself in Germany, mm. and I don't speak German, mm. so some of the experiences you related to really strike home with me. And my question really is about the nature of history and your uh, cover. I noticed that it's the story of Germany, not a history of Germany. Oh, yeah. And you use the word passionate memoir. Yep. Um, if I refer you back to the little instance you gave us where um, your researcher was going to read the whole document and you said, come yep. to the chase, yes. just look for this bit. Mm -hmm. um, in a way, that runs against some historians' view of what this historian's activity should be. I'm not a historian. In other words, you exhaust all the text and you allow the story to right. rise out of the text. Yeah, yeah. 
whereas in your case, you freely admitted that it was driven by your authorial yeah. um, interests and just wondered if you could say a bit more about yeah, that. Yes, I mean, so I'm not a historian. I'm not a historian. Um, I studied anthropology. Uh, but no, 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 I'm not being defensive. No, 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 no. I'm not apologizing. I'm just being honest. Uh, but I'm fascinated by truth and facts. And I mean, part of the reason, honestly, why I, did, I explained the speed, it's just, it's just it's resources. If I had time, I would have taken more time uh, to do that and you know there'll be certain documents where I spend a lot of time trying to understand them but yes I was trying to tell a story of these five families and this house uh, which when I first told people about this they said you're nuts why would anybody want to know about a house let alone the five families and to make it of interest it had to be personal and it had to be intimate and it had to be true and, and I use the, true, the word true very carefully. So when my grandmother took us back to Germany in 1993, when she was 80, the only time she took us back, she wanted to show us the city of her birth. We were in the airplane and she sat next to me on the airplane. She said, darling, I've got this thing for you. And she had this old driving license envelope, you know, one of those old brown envelopes. And inside were two passports and a yellow star. And the passport were her husband's passport and her father-in-law's passport, the Nazi-era passports with the swastikas, and then the yellow star. And she said, you know, this is basically for, for you to remember, what, so you don't forget the story. And I was 20-something. I was incredibly moved by this act. I found it overwhelming. And then when she died, I was actually holding her hand when she died in 2004. Um, and, uh, and then later, when her possessions were distributed. My mother you know, got this, and my sister got a painting, and my brother got I know, a desk. My cousin got some silverware. I, there was only one thing I, had, I was given, and it was this brown envelope with my name on it. So for whatever reason, she thought I was the one who needed that. And I was incredibly moved by that, and also felt a responsibility to tell the story. I then went on to learn, of course, that there's no way she had a yellow star. She left in 1936, before Yellow Stars were handed out. And I was f so angry. I felt manipulated, infuriated. And then later on, I began to realize, actually, there was a much bigger truth to this. Yes, the facts are that she wouldn't have worn a Yellow Star. But Jewish people, the Jewish people in Germany and Poland, so on, wore Yellow Stars. And that's what she was trying to get across. That is to say, uh, so it's kind of a roundabout way of saying that for me, what's important is, is definitely the facts, but it's the emotional honesty, the emotional truth of what's going on is the most important part of the story. Um, and the way to get that is to go to multiple sources because individual people aren't reliable, because facts are not reliable, because photographs can be changed. You know, all these things are not reliable. So I mean, hopefully that answers your question. Great answer. Thank you. I, I would like to... to, to discuss with you, I have a question about a key term of yours, reconciliation, right? And that's something your grandmother has, didn't have in mind ever, never thought about this. Yeah. It's also one of the starting points of your story. And I wonder what you really mean by that. You know, if we look at one of your most interesting characters in this one, Maisel, why shall I open process of recon reconciliation with him? With Doris, yeah. Or, I mean, yeah. I have married in a very German family. Yeah. 
and some of them used to be very good Nazis. Mm. So what? Or for example, my very best friend, um, he's a real Berliner, but he lives now in Beersheba, he's a professor in archaeology, but his father was a real ardent Nazi until he died mm. two years ago. Reconciliation? I mean, what do we need? Do we need really? And what for? And what, what do you understand by that? So, so, I mean, the reason why I want to be part of a reconciliation process is because I feel better. Mm -hmm. and it's personal. You know, I, I now go back to Berlin and I have friends and I like meeting them. Mm -hmm. uh, 15 years ago, I didn't and I couldn't. Mm -hmm. And I see the same <coughs> process going on with my family members, but some of them still have a real problem. My mm -hmm. aunt really struggles with walking in Berlin. Uh, she, it, it, she doesn't feel comfortable. She, she's scared. Mm -hmm. uh, and for me, that process is both personal but also social. So learning those lessons, for me, is interesting to be able to share that process with other people, which is why we've set up this organization which can do reconciliation. So one of the things that we're doing is we're working with schools in Berlin and in Potsdam and in England, bringing the school children together so they can learn lessons of history, they can do reconciliation. Uh, because reconciliation is about the past and the future. You can't do one without the other. A dear friend of mine, Yasmin, who we're working with, she said the thing about this house, the extraordinary thing about this house, is it's, it's a bridge between the past and the future. Mm -hmm. And it allows you to walk between the two. And reconciliation does it, but you can only do that if you're honest. You can only, the only reason we're able to do that in Germany is because there's a bedrock of honesty. We, recently, we've struggled with the, some of the people in the village who, um, for the most part, people are overwhelmingly in favor of what we're doing. Everybody loves the fact we're renovating the house, we're going to do education work there. But there is some resistance from some people about the scale of what we're doing, that we're bringing lots of people in the village, that we're talking about the future. We're, they'll talk about the past is fine, but talking about the future is political, it's difficult, it's controversial. And for me, that just means that's something to work with. Mm -hmm. that, that's a real tension. It's a real Well, let's talk about it. Let's work out what's going on there. Why is that challenging to you? You know, what is, you know, what is actually at risk here? What is the danger for you? And let's talk about that and work with that to try and do something different. Uh, because I think by only by confronting those real issues, by being authentic with what scares us, can we actually bring about real change. I just have some problems with this term, reconciliation. Um, you know, I also have two passports, a German passport. Sure. I got the German passport for the same reason as you got the German passport. But that, uh, recently, I was afraid of traveling with my German passport. I have it for 10 years. Well, what does reconciliation mean to you? What's the word mean? I would never use this term. Well, what does you know, it mean? You I'll, like I'll just yeah. give me a sec. Now, my mother died recently, and then I started to travel with my German passport. Mm. For me, it has more to come to. For me, it has much more to do with come to terms with something. Come to terms. Yes, and the second thing is, I also think. Forgive? Do you mean forgive? No, I don't, I don't forgive. No, no, I'm asking you that. Do you think reconciliation is to do with forgiveness? Yes, and the second thing is, um, I don't think we can learn from history. Hmm? As history is not repeating itself, hmm. but here I'm speaking as a historian. Yeah. And but it's also what we, we spoke a lot about emotions, feelings, I think when you use the term to learn from history, somehow you try to give sense to Auschwitz, make sense. 
otherwise you can't learn. But Auschwitz doesn't make sense. Still, as a historian, I work on Auschwitz. And as an academic, you mm. try to bring in sense into the picture somehow. somehow. It, it, it's, it's very contradictory, the entire thing. And I'm not quite sure if the term reconciliation is very helpful, helpful here, but it, because it tends to blur everything. It tends to blur what causes pain. Well, I, I, think, I think this is, goes back to the one and two things, which is that for my family, for me, you we can't do the second thing without the first. Mm -hmm. And they can't be merged. So I'm not interested in forgiveness. Mm -hmm. I don't like forgiveness. I don't buy it. I, I don't buy it at all. Mm -hmm. The whole forgive, forget thing, I, don't, I, find it, I struggle with that. For me, reconciliation is about reconnecting. You're connecting mm -hmm. with the past and you're connecting with the people, but it, you can only go forward if you acknowledge the past. So people, people ask me, you know, are you trying to turn the page? Are you trying to move on? And absolutely not. You know, for me, it's more like you're ripping the page out of the book and you're putting it on the wall. Mm -hmm. That's the past. And you're ripping another page out and you're putting, they're both up on the wall. Mm -hmm. As soon as you turn the page on that, turn the page, mm -hmm. you're ignoring the past. I absolutely don't believe that's mm -hmm. part of reconciliation. Reconciliation, that's why they talk about truth and reconciliation. You can't have reconciliation without the truth. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. Uh, so I think reconciliation, I mean, whether it's the right word or not, it, it does work for me, because it's about connecting, reconnecting. Uh, in terms of Auschwitz, you know, trying to make sense of something which is of such traumatic scale, uh, I think I and maybe other people, they, we use reason to try and get control. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. a way of trying to mm -hmm. regain control of a situation mm -hmm. where there was no control. Mm -hmm. The thing which was most terrible about Auschwitz was the removal of absolute control. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, you know, it's, it's, um, it's the most, you know, appalling thing. I've been, I, I went back to Auschwitz with the grandson of Rudolf Huss, and, uh, who's a very strange character. And uh, he was most interested in the villa <coughs> where his grandfather was. Uh, and then I went to see his daughter, Brigitta. I was the only, I've been, I'm the only person who really spoken to her, and she lives in Washington, D.C., we were talking about this earlier, mm -hmm. and uh, she's 84. I spoke to her this week, actually, and um, she lived in Washington. She moved to America in the 1950s in Auschwitz. She was around eight years old, eight to 11, and it, was, it took me three days. For the next three days, I was really shaken up. I was very psychologically disturbed. We were sitting in her den, and I, and I said, what's your father like? And she said he was the nicest, kindest man in the world. And I said, how can he be the nicest, kindest man in the world if, if he's responsible for the murder of over a million men, women, and children? And she said, well, there must have been two sides to him. The side I knew, who told me stories at night, who took me on the river for boat rides, who took me to see the dogs, and this other side. And she didn't deny the other side. She'd read you know, the book. She'd seen Schindler's List. Uh, but it wasn't her experience. Mm -hmm. And I found that extraordinarily disturbing, the idea that the same person could be so loved and yet do these deeds. And for me, that's a warning about human behavior, which is we're all capable mm -hmm. of these awful, awful mm -hmm. things, which is why it happens elsewhere. And as soon as we start talking about monsters and psychopaths, you know, I think that's a way of, which goes back to the Hans and Rudolf, mm -hmm. the names. As soon as we start pathologizing the behavior, making it other, it means that we can't prepare or stop it from happening again. 
Um, so I think it's very important that we understand that these acts, um, that while you asked about make, trying to make sense of it, mm -hmm. I think it's important that we do understand what happens and that it, that it is part of human behavior. It's not other. It's definitely part of who we are. We just have to make sure it doesn't happen again. Maybe one very last question from Philip. Well, it's a wonderful talk. I am, though, quite troubled by quite modernist, really. I mean, like, leave aside the last bit about Boston and Colonel in fact, we will do this. I think that's, that's deeply mistaken for a whole other question. My question really is about history and stories. And you've, you've used the term truth a lot. And if it's even allowing for this cross-checking. Sure. What you would do, what we all do when we talk about anything, is we tell a story about it. But we could tell other stories. So my question is, when you wrote this story, how much was the drive for reconciliation structuring the story? It wasn't. Really? Yeah, it wasn't. I didn't know how it was going to end. That's not my question. I think I'm not about how you started. As you were working, yeah, as you were working. Yeah. Where's? No, my my my. my all of us who my all aim of historians have to confront yeah. the question. Yeah, yeah, sure. What are we selecting? What are we trying to sure. do? Sure. What are we doing? Could we tell sure. this another way? Sure. I mean, I, I'm not a historian, and my aim of the but book... You can't avoid that question. No, no, I'm trying not to. My aim of the book was to save the house. Mm -hmm. uh, that was what I was trying to do. I was trying to save the house. And to do that, I had to tell the stories of the people who were at the house as best as I could. You know, for example, I had to limit the size of the book. It couldn't be a thousand pages. Nobody would read it. I had to write it in such a way that was readable. Um, I had to... Uh, select certain stories that were more interesting than other stories. Uh, did I, have I missed anything out that would change your mind about these characters? I don't think so, honestly, I don't think so. Have I tried to whitewash anything? No, I don't think so. I think I've tried to be as honest as I can. Have I brought my own biases? Of course, I'm not objective, I'm a human being. Uh, did my motivations affect the writing? Of course. One of the things I want to do is I want to be a successful writer. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, of course, uh, I'm not an objective historian who's trying to get a PhD, who's trying to get approval from my PhD supervisor, who's trying to get a job at a historical institute, who's trying to give a seminar in Buenos Aires. You know, that's not what I'm trying to do in this situation. I'm, I was trying to understand the story of the families and tell it to the best of my ability uh, for people who would be interested. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, so we have to bring the official part of this evening to an end. I could listen to you more, but we are a little bit running out of time. And please join us for a little bit of wine and nibbles over there. And thank you so much thank for coming you. to us. Thank you.